Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, you know, things we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is October the 6th, 2017. This is episode 2094 of the Survival Podcast. And it's Friday, Friday, Friday. That means it's time for the Expert Council Q&A show. I've got a great show lined up for you today. I'm going to start off today, actually, even though I'm going to do the anchor thing like I always do on Fridays. And I'm going to talk a little bit about Crypto Gulch. What's Crypto Gulch? Crypto Gulch is uh, it's a venture being initiated by a good friend of mine, a long-term partner, a guy I've worked with for almost, well, over 20 years, I guess, uh, named Ben Fitz. And uh, it's, it's, it's pretty awesome. It's going to be a way you can get into mining cryptocurrency. I'll tell you a little bit about it when we start off today. I have some considerations when raising heirloom hogs, in, in this case a, a specific type of heirloom hog, but it pretty much applies to any of the non-conventional pigs that you might raise uh, for profit from full-time farmer Darby Simpson. I have putting together a birthing kit from our own nurse Amy. I have dealing with road rage from prior law enforcement officer Dan Oman. I have improving soil on large permaculture properties from Jeff Lawton, who we haven't heard from in a while, given a call in from Jordan. Uh, I have a question and an answer on how fees are kept low using the shift debit card for BTC or Bitcoin with Brandon Todd. And I have from Nicole Sauce, finally something she can really get excited about because her passion, one of her passions in life is coffee. And of course she has holler roast coffee. Uh, and she usually answers your question on entrepreneurship and things like that. But she's going to answer a question on making the perfect cup of coffee at home. I thought that'd be a good, Ending to our, our Friday from our expert council. So Saturday morning, get up and make that perfect cup of coffee. And then I have a question I'm going to answer I've gotten from a ton of people. At the Vegas shooting, uh, country music singer John Rich, who was about to 86 the AO, actually is a guy that carries concealed, legally I might add. And there was an off-duty law enforcement officer there, and John Rich gave his gun to the Leo who was going to go try to help, try to do something. He was unarmed. I've had a lot of people say a lot of negative things about that. Some say some positive things about that. And a bunch of people ask me, what would Jack do? As you might imagine, the answer is, it depends. But I'm sure as hell not going to be crapping on John Rich when I answer this question. All of that and more in just a bit. Before we get into this stuff, let me remind you, if you like this show and the work that I do, one of the ways you can help support us is by joining the Members Support Brigade. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com, click on Members to learn more, and you can see exactly how to sign up there. Remember, I take cash, check, money order by mail. You can sign up online with a credit card or PayPal. You can pay by cryptocurrency, and I even take barter if you want to propose something. The big thing with the MSB, if you buy stuff in this world, from seeds to long-term storage food to precious metals, I don't care what it is. If you buy stuff in this world, If you are an MSB member, your membership pays for itself. Again, support the show at about 20 cents an episode and get your money back every year by using the discounts. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on members to learn more. So let's get into it. I'm going to start out with an update on Crypto Gulch. I'm going to keep this brief. I put out a blog post about this today, uh, but I thought maybe it would be a little bit easier to understand if I gave an audio uh, explanation of what Crypto Gulch is. So several months ago, Ben Fitz, who, who I've worked with for a long time. Now, Ben 
built the MSB. Ben has access to the MSB to tell you how much I trust Ben. Ben and I, like I said, have worked together, I guess, about 20 years, maybe a little longer. I'm trying to remember if my first work with Ben was before or after I met Dorothy. I think it was right about the same time. Uh, so right around 20 years uh, that Ben and I have worked together. Well, he came to me and he said, I've been mining cryptocurrency, and I'm, I'm thinking about putting together a company that would basically mine for customers. But the customers would own the equipment. Instead of a lease model where you lease equipment and you lease hashing power for a certain length of time and you, you get whatever comes out of that equipment, you actually buy the equipment and, and Ben will do what's called co-location. Now, co-location means exactly what it sounds. Your equipment is located in his facility that he manages. This is how most web hosting works. I have two dedicated servers for survival podcasts and all my other stuff, all right? I mean, I, I don't have shared service. I have a full server sitting in Iraq. One of them is sitting in London, and one is sitting in Las Vegas. And I choose to do that rather than put one here because they have all of the high output, um, you know, uh, bandwidth to link out to the outside world. But more it's because if something goes wrong, there's somebody there to fix it at 3 o'clock in the morning. That's what co-location is about. You own the equipment, but somebody else oversees it and does certain things for you in return for a fee. That's how this works. So you buy the equipment, Ben sets it up, he runs it for you, and he charges a monthly fee on a percentage of mining. And this is his incentive to mine to the best ability for you. The way he does that is for a certain period of time each day, the equipment mines for you, and then for a certain period of time each day, that equipment mines for him. You see how that works out. So if he does a really good job, it's good for him. If he does a bad job, it's not good for him. And that's the basic premise of it. There, there's more than that. But what I wanted to kind of point out, I've, I've got some questions and somewhat of, I guess, objections in, in some places on Facebook and stuff like that. Like, why would I do this? Why would I just buy my own damn stuff and put it in my own damn house and buy my own damn cryptocurrency? If that is what you think, that is what you should do. And I would never tell you you're wrong for doing that. If the person who's completely comfortable setting up a complete mining rig, managing it themselves, programming it themselves, deciding when to switch from man, uh, mining something like Zcash to, say, Monero and back, and can set it up to do all that stuff, you should not use a co-location mining facility, and you probably shouldn't lease mining equipment either. You should, If you want to pay for and buy equipment, that is what you should do. I don't want to. I don't know how. I don't have the time to learn. I want to invest my money, have ownership of my equipment, and have my equipment produce cryptocurrency for me. I've spent my own money already. I, I was one of Ben's guinea pigs. I bought four GPUs from him out of the gate. At his, you know, I'm not even sure if it's going to be his final pricing or not. And just today, I, I bought two more. Um, am I making a fortune? No. No, but I will tell you this. I've invested thousands of dollars in businesses before as co-owner and things like that. Uh, and I have gone years getting no money back out. There was one time I made a huge investment into a company where I was basically just an owner of a small piece of that company. And it was 18 months before I saw a penny. And it was about four years into it when the guy actually had gotten done what he thought he would get done. And he was able to sell the company And I got my piece of the company when he sold it. And that worked out very, very well for me. But I waited a long time for it to happen. There was a million things that could have went wrong. 
But that entrepreneur mind sh mindset is what you have to be doing if you're going to get involved with this. And if you're not, don't. I mean, seriously, this is here's here's the deal. Why am I doing this? Well, I'm doing it because it's Ben and I trust him. Two, it's a product I want to buy and use. And three, I am an affiliate. I do not own any of his company. I have no ownership stake and no authority. I get a whopping 5% commission on referrals. That's not a ton of money. But what I've decided to do is take all of the money and continuously reinvest to buy new GPUs and new mining rigs and keep reinvesting in my equipment. That makes sense for me. I think I'll do well with it. I'll be honest about that. I'm not going to hide it from you. Yes, I am motivated by money. I also am motivated by trust. Again, I've worked with, with Ben for a very, very long time. Uh, if you want to get more details on this, I put out a, a post today on the blog at thesurvivalpodcast.com. If you go there and scroll down, you'll see the big old Crypto Gulch um, graphic, and you can read more on the article. You can ask questions there. Ben is answering questions there. But basically, again, it's going to be you buy the equipment, and I am working with Ben kind of as a unpaid consultant, I guess, because I get my referral fee no matter what I do, right? So I am consulting with him right now. We're trying to figure out exactly how to price and what equipment the, the person owns. And we're leaning toward, instead of just the cards, because when you just own the cards, we have to, well, we, I, Ben has to charge a hell of a lot more for them and make a lot more margin on them because he has to pay for the, the, the box that they slot into, the, the controller basically, and the cooling equipment. And my response to him today about that was, I think you should sell them everything and price it accordingly. So that it, cause this is how this works. Let's say you say, I'm done with this. I, I don't want you doing this for me anymore. Send me my stuff. Well, they'll figure out how much it costs to ship and they'll charge you a fee to ship it to you and they'll mail your equipment to you. Well, if you just get cards, then you have to figure out what to do with them. You have to slot them into something. If they send you the whole rig, you can plug it in and start rolling. Right, So I think that makes more sense. I think that puts less liability on the company side. And I want the company to do well. And if you're mining with them, you want them to do well too. I mean, that's what you have to understand. Um, but this is an entrepreneurial play. You're not guaranteed shit. Let me say that one more time, just so that everybody understands me. You are not guaranteed shit from a standpoint of results. What you are guaranteed is the equipment that you are promised will be purchased in your name. It will be operated to the best of its ability. It will be pointed at crypto mining. It will do crypto mining and anything that comes out during the time that it's mining for you versus the time you're paying the fee for it to, to be run for you will be deposited into the wallet address of your choice. And if you want your equipment, it will be shipped to you for a shipping fee. That's what you're guaranteed. The number that comes out at the end is impossible to guarantee because what happens if you're mining Zcash and it, go, it gets cut in half because of market forces tomorrow? Well, whatever you've mined already, unless you've turned it into something else, has been cut in half. What happens if it, if it triples in volume? Well, your time to return of investment goes much quicker, doesn't it? Um, As I finish up for this today, I want to kind of tell you the thing that I find the most exciting about this. The only way that I know of to truly acquire cryptocurrency in a way that truly is anonymous, where even if someone can say, hey, there's cryptocurrency that came out of the blockchain and it was written into the blockchain on this address, But there's no way to know who, who owns it, especially if you're mining something like Zcash, which is anonymous on top of that, is to mine it. Otherwise, somewhere you had to make a purchase. And if you do it with a Bitcoin ATM, you have to put a cell phone number in. If you do it on Coinbase, they require certain information. If you buy it with a credit card, like you have to have some way to get into the crypto game and get started and, and 
other than mining, it almost always involves making a purchase. And a purchase is a transaction record. Yeah, you can probably buy some anonymously from somebody that you meet offline or something like that, but it's, it's not the same. Where if you set up mining operations and you're mining cryptocurrency, and long-term your view is that this is the future of, of economics, and I believe that it is, and there's going to be a, a certain call or certain advantage to having some cryptocurrency that truly exists only as cryptocurrency with no one knowing who the hell knows what, the only way I know to make sure that happens is to mine it. And there's other ways to do that. I mean, you can lease equipment and what have you. But again, in this instance, it's just paying for use of the equipment. You're buying the equipment, you own it, and you can repurpose it. I would tell you this. There's people saying, you know, 18 months to two years tops these uh, GPU cards won't be worth anything for crypto mining. First of all, I don't think that's the case. I think they won't be very valuable for mining the most difficult cryptocurrencies, but there's all types of altcoins and secondary markets that they can be pointed at. And even if you think, well, those coins don't have a long-term future, they can be mined and immediately swapped into something that you believe does. The other thing is, though, unless... See, and this could happen. Just to be... I try to be honest, you know. I don't know what's going to happen. Unless there's a complete shift off GPUs to something else... The latest and greatest and best GPUs for the, the foreseeable future are going to be gobbled up by people that want to use them for mining, which leaves a whole bunch of pissed-off, angry gamers. If nothing else, you should be able to sell the damn things on the secondary market to gamers because even though they're not the best that can be acquired now, they're damn good even you know a year or two from now for gaming. Now, that's not your guys that are sponsored with all, like, tatted up or uh, uh, patched up like a NASCAR driver or something in, in the top end, but I think there's a lot of gamers out there. There's a lot of, lot of use on the secondary market for high-end computing equipment, which is what GPUs are. That's my thoughts, and uh, again, I'm pretty excited about this. So I, I think there's a, there's a lot to this or I wouldn't be involved in it. That's what I'm going to say for now. If you have further questions, please post them on the Don't send them to me an email. Please post them on the article that I put out today. The title is an update on Crypto Gulch so that I can answer them and Ben can answer them and we can answer them in one place so we have to keep answering the same question. So there you go on that. Let's go ahead and get into our first question for an expert council member today. This is a question on raising heirloom hogs for Darby Simpson. Darby, take it away. Hey there, everyone. This is Darby Simpson of DarbySimpson.com and the Grass-Fed Life Podcast. Today, I'm calling in to answer another uh, question for the TSP Expert Council. And I've got a, a question from a gentleman in Michigan that's wanting to know about raising Mangalista pigs. Uh, and to be honest, I don't have any direct experience raising this type of pig. Uh, I understand that they are a slower growing pig. Uh, they, they tend to be a bit more of a, you know, premium product, if you will. And as Jack has covered, um, you know, there have been some issues with the, um, you know, the People's Republic of Michigan and their DNR about raising a Mangalista pig. Um, like I said, Jack's, Jack's covered that, so I'm not going to go into it. Um, I'm, I'm looking at this more from a profitability standpoint and the fact that they can take longer to grow out. And that usually for me signals one of two things. Uh, and, and, you know, in my context, uh, that's something I don't touch. It does not work. 
I personally wouldn't try these pigs. I wouldn't raise Cooney Coonies. I wouldn't raise American Guinea Hogs. I wouldn't raise Large Blacks. They're the opposite end of the spectrum. They're great big pigs, but they take a long time to grow out, uh, simply because that's not what I can sell in my market. Um, my my thoughts, you know, here are uh, for Jacob. Um, you know, would be can you maybe take these, you know, these slower growing pigs, would you have a market uh, with chefs, with high-end restaurants or a charcuterie, you know, something where you can really get the value out of them? Um, because if you just look at it from a price per pound uh, versus how many hours you put into them and you figure out what the labor rate is that you're paying yourself to raise these pigs – I think that's where a lot of people run into issues, and I've, I've yet to talk with anyone who was was raising a pig like this for meat. I'm not talking about breeding stock, but raising a pig like this for meat where they had gotten it to pencil out. I've talked with lots and lots of people who have not been able to make it pencil out. I'm not saying it's impossible. I'm just saying I do not have a, a good point of reference uh, for someone who is doing it, that doesn't mean they don't exist. It just means that I'm not aware of them. So those are my those are my big thoughts, Jacob. Um, that you know, if this is something you're really interested in, I I, I think you've got to do the legwork and really uh, focus on you know can can you get a a premium point of sale. Uh, again, whether that be with a high end restaurant, charcuterie, you know, could you. Uh, maybe get them into like an old school uh, delicatessen, you know, so, something along those lines. I, I think that's what you're going to have to focus on doing. Uh, you mentioned you only had a couple of acres of, of woods. Um, you know, may, maybe it would help if you had some of these and you had some, you know, Berkshires or Durocs or, or Hamps or whatever. Maybe you could raise them side by side and possibly that would take the edge off. I mean, if you're out managing uh, some, some, you know, what I call normal uh, quicker growing pigs, which is still going to be six, seven, eight months from, from birth to uh, freezer uh, alongside the slower growing guys. I mean, maybe that's an alternative that would, you know, help it work out and maybe pencil out a little bit better for you. I'm not really sure. Like I said, this is, this is a question I, I get asked frequently and it's just not something that's ever interested me. It's not something that works in my market. Um, you know, we have a very low cost of living here in central Indiana. Um, and people make a good living, but they don't want to expend, you know, exuberant uh, amounts of, of money on, on meat. I, I've never been a guy that wanted to go sell in lots and lots of high-end restaurants um, or, you know, high-end delis or, or anything like that. I, I, my personal context is I want to make good, clean food affordable for the average family. I'm more concerned with what does, you know, soccer mom who's trying to feed a, a family of four on a budget, uh, what's she interested in purchasing at a farmer's market in a parking lot on a Saturday morning as opposed to what a product like this would, would bring to the table. So that, and really that's just my personal context. It's not saying it's, it's right or wrong. It's just, you know, that's, that's right for me, but what's right for me probably isn't right for you. So really, uh, Jacob, those are my thoughts. Uh, hopefully it was, it was helpful. I, I really just want to stress, I think you've got to look at some, you know, different sales 
techniques than what I would personally use and employ here in my market. So anyway, for those of you who would like to learn more about me, feel free to check out DarbySimpson.com. Uh, you can also check out the Grassfed Life podcast, which now has its own stream in iTunes. Just type in Grassfed Life and you are sure to find it. You can also still find it by going out to permaculturevoices.com. That website is owned and operated by my good friend Diego Footer. There you will find well over 70 episodes of Grassfed Life. We are pushing like 80 or 90 hours of podcasting on everything to do with raising and selling for-profit pastured poultry, forest-raised pork, and 100% grass-fed beef. Any, anything from production to marketing to dealing with issues on the farm, you name it, we cover it. So go out there, check it out. As always, thanks for sending in these questions. Uh, please keep them coming. Love answering them for you guys. Have a wonderful weekend and take care. I mean, here's my kind of follow-up on this. I've talked to so many people that want to raise hogs. Um pastured hogs and everybody wants to do you know american guinea hogs or red wattle or whatever and, and none of them grow as fast and grow to market size as quickly as just a plain old pig it's just it's just mathematical fact so here's what i'm going to suggest for anybody considering this i don't want to rain on your parade and i'm not saying not to do it i am saying just like in many other things, everything you learn is a skill. And the skill has to be perfected before you can really earn money with it. Okay? It doesn't, you don't have to become a master, but you have to be good. You have to be competent. So when we, like Nick Ferguson and I have the exact same opinion on this. You want to plant your first garden. And you're like, I want to learn how to propagate plants and save seed and make compost and, uh, you know, propagate from seed and set up grow lights. And what Nick and I say is, go get pre-mixed garden soil or your just get organic compost and mix it in with your soil. Build a raised bed and throw it in. Don't worry about composting your first year. Buy soil amendments and stick them in there. Don't worry about starting plants. Okay, go out and buy some plants. Put them in the ground. Make sure your irrigation is sound and learn to grow plants. Now, while your plants are growing, then you can start a compost pile. Okay? And you can start preparing that so you have a, a reserve of nutrient developed for next season. Maybe you can then, once you start your compost pile and you feel comfortable with it, you get that going. Now maybe you start thinking about your fall garden or some mid-season plants. Now maybe we do some propagation from seed from plants that you grow from seed, but you can't just throw the seed in the ground outside. You still got it. So now we learn how to do that skill because each one of these is a skill. Harvesting, seed, all of these are skills. So if we break it down into pieces, parts, and learn a skill and become competent in it, and then add another skill, and then add another skill as competence develops, you get a lot better results. Okay, Raising pigs is a skill. It sounds stupid easy, but it actually has a lot of things going on. By removing the variable of this heirloom pig that's going to take longer to grow and be harder to sell for the price you need to to break even or make a profit, and raising a plain old pink pig, they're not always pink, but that's what Darby calls them, a pink pig, you know that you have like seven to eight months and that pig is big enough to sell it and be gone. Now, during that time, you have to learn how to install your infrastructure, manage your infrastructure, feed the pigs, keep them from killing each other, keep them from killing you, keep them from getting away, train them to hotwire. You got all this, okay? 
And you got to figure out, how do I market my pig to somebody that will pay me for it so I get money at the end of this, and the pig will go away, and I will have money, and I will be happy, and my season will be over, and I'll go, yay me, I have pig money instead of pigs. And now I can reinvest that pig money to new pigs next year and do it again. Okay. When you do all that with pink pigs, you have a, 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 the ability to talk to every single customer and say, Mr. or Mrs. Customer, this is a regular pig. This pig has been raised on pasture. That's why you're paying what you're paying for it. It is going to be the finest pork you've ever eaten in your life. I am considering raising this kind of pig next year. However, it will take longer, and this is how much it will cost. I would appreciate it if I could get your phone number and call you in about two months after you've had about two months to enjoy this wonderful pork to discuss with you if you would prefer to pay a little more for this even higher quality pork. If you do that, then you will have a ready market of people who want to pay more, or your market will tell you, screw you, we're not paying more for it. Or, while you're making money and learning your skill, you can go out and seek that secondary high-end charcuterie, high-end restaurant market for that higher-end pig. And when they say, do you know what you're doing? You can say, well, I'm doing regular pigs right now. That's what I'm selling to regular Joe customer. There's the same thing, but it'll take longer and cost more. Are you interested? This is how you break shit apart instead of just like getting your idea on one thing and, and pushing that forward. Go out and perfect the first important skill set first, being able to raise a pig, get it to market, and make money. Now we can say, now is the premium, and the, here's how you do the premium thing. If going longer and getting more money results in the same dollar per pound per year for you, unless you're passionate about it, you just think that this pig is important, you don't do it because it takes longer to make the same money. You have to make more if you're going to do more work or don't do it. That's just my opinion. Anyway, uh, next question I have is for Nurse Amy on putting together a birthing kit. Uh, and with her credentials, she is the person for this one. Amy, take it away. Hey, everybody. Amy Alton, an advanced registered nurse practitioner and a certified nurse midwife here. I'm also known as Nurse Amy of the survival medicine website, doomandbloom.net, and co-author of the survival medicine handbook, The Essential Guide for When Help is Not on the Way. Today's question for the expert counsel comes from John, who writes, What equipment should be in my preps to deal with childbirth? Background. Any group of people will have to deal with childbirth at some point, whether it's a SHTF scenario or short-term collapse if the pregnancy is advanced or home births. Plus, it's a question I don't think I've ever heard asked on TSP. Regards, John Briggs. Well, John, the delivery of a baby is best accomplished with the help of an experienced nurse midwife or obstetrician. But those professionals will be hard to find in a collapse situation. If there is no chance of accessing modern medical care, it will be up to you to perform the delivery. This list includes some things that may need electricity, like the heating blanket, so weed out these items and use non-electrical alternatives if necessary. Here are most of the supplies you should have. Mattress cover, plastic sheeting, or a shower curtain. Cotton sheets to cover the plastic. The mom should not be laying on the plastic. Change the sheets if they get too wet from sweat. And remember, your job is to keep her comfortable and not to argue with her in any way. Please don't annoy the person in pain. Extra pillows and plastic covers and pillowcases that she can position to make herself comfortable. Music she likes at a volume she wants. Soft food and lots of hydration. 
Gatorade and water depending on how sweaty she is, and get some straws if possible to make it easier for her to drink in different positions. Let her have some honey straws for extra energy. Popsicles, again, if you have electricity, and frozen Gatorade are good to suck on also. Let her get up and walk around as much as she wants. Trust her to trust her body. A space heater or fan as she requests so she can control the temperature. Use evaporative cooling compresses to cool her off if you don't have the electricity. If she's cold, get out extra blankets and put warm socks on her feet. Under pads, also known as chucks, to catch any leaks. These can be used during the birthing process or afterwards to keep the sheets cleaner. Heating pad or hot water bottle for the mom's back. Again, remember the hot water bottle is a non-electrical alternative. Tennis balls used under her back are good for a massage to the muscles. An exercise ball is comfortable for a laboring woman to sit on and a good position to help the labor progress. Washcloths and towels to wipe off sweat. Create those cooling compresses for her forehead and neck. And also have a clean set ready for showering after the birth. Have a digital thermometer, manual blood pressure cuff and stethoscope for checking on mom. Digital pulse oximeter also for checking on mom. Non-sterile nitrile gloves for various sizes, which can be used for cleaning up the mother after delivery, changing the chucks, sheets, etc., Gauze sponges of different sizes, like 4x4s, sterile. Hibiclin scrub brush is great to wash up your hands before putting on your sterile gloves to attend the birth. A bedpan in case she's too tired to get out of bed to go urinate. A mirror so the mom can see the baby's head and feel positive motivation to continue pushing. A standing light source or someone holding a strong light source so the attendee can see properly. EMLA cream, E-M-L-A cream, which stands for Eutectic Mixture of Local Analgesics. It's an anesthetic cream best applied at 6 to 7 centimeters dilated on a mom who's had previous babies and at 9 centimeters for a first-time mom. Make sure you wipe off this cream prior to the baby's head beginning to emerge as it can irritate the eyes of the baby. Use lubricating sterile jelly packets until the birth at this point. I just ordered some... Emla Cream on Amazon.ca, which stands for Canada, and I'll see if I actually get it delivered in supposedly four weeks. If you absolutely have to cut the perineum, which please, please do not do that. Just let nature take its course. But if you feel you have to because the mom is starting to tear the skin already, use a sharp scalpel. There's something called a tri-level blade, which generates a smoother, sharper, less traumatic incision. Again, please only use this if needed. You can use olive oil, get a four-ounce bottle prior to the head beginning to emerge for stretching the perineum so the person does not tear. Um, You may want to use this instead of the Emla cream. Have a two-ounce bulb syringe to suck out the baby's mouth and nose immediately after delivery. Put the baby directly on the mother's chest and cover them both with warm blankets or towels. Have two sterile clamps. Use one on the umbilical cord And then a few inches apart, put the second one on. Cut in between with sterile scissors. Place an umbilical clamp about an inch or so above the baby's belly button and cut off the extra cord above that clamp. There's no hurry to put the clamp just above the belly button at this point. Have a bunch of baby blankets. Have some infant hats that are 100% unbleached cotton two-ply. Get a peri bottle, a 16-ounce squirt bottle to be filled with clean water for cleaning off post-delivery and also when the mom goes to the bathroom. It helps her clean up. Get some Hibiclin's antiseptic solution, about four ounces. It can be used to help clean up after delivery and before laceration or episiotomy repair. 
a suture kit with dissolving sutures such as 3-0 chromic, and hopefully you can find some lidocaine. But a study did show that adequate relief was achieved if the Emla cream was applied prior to delivery, around the times that I was telling you earlier. Have some drawstring trash bags, 33 gallons a great. One can be placed at the end of the bed to help catch some of the delivery discharge. You might want to have a small trash container to put the bag over so everything stays in one place. Excessive post-delivery blood loss, especially without a working modern medical system, is a dire emergency that has caused tremendous loss of life throughout history, including still today in modern hospitals. So don't forget that. Learn the techniques for stopping postpartum hemorrhage if you have to attend a birth without a professional. There are several causes to postpartum hemorrhage and may require specific maneuvers to save her life. The number one rule after delivery of the baby is don't ever yank or pull hard on an umbilical cord attached to the placenta inside of a mom, ever. This is a really bad idea and even deadly consequences may follow. Let the body decide when it's time to separate the placenta from the uterus. I just want to remind you guys listening, and guys, I'm sure there's mostly men listening, that I am not telling you the step-by-step method on how to deliver a baby. I'm just throwing in some helpful hints and tips as we go through this list of supplies. If you want a detailed look about how to deliver a baby, you can find this detailed explanation on our third edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook on Amazon. Or go visit our store at doomandbloom.net. Perry cold packs or medium-sized instant ice packs are great. There are also some special OB pads that have instant cold packs inside of them. Get tux pads and a bottle of Dermaplast for pain relief down there. Have some maxi pads, a pad for medium to heavy afterbirth flow. For afterbirth comfort and cleaning ease, use mesh panties that are latex-free, extra-large, made of nylon material. Get an infant paper tape measure for baby measurements. A foot printer, which is a print design that keeps inks off the baby's foot or the mother's finger. It provides three ink sections, two newborn feet, and one for mother's finger for future proof of birth. Have gentle perfume-free baby bath wash, unscented baby wipes, baby diapers, disposable or cloth, baby socks, and cotton onesies. And some hydrogen peroxide, which cleans up blood really well on surfaces. And make sure you get a few bottles. I found this postpartum kit called Mama Koala Postpartum Pamper Kit. Might be something really good to have on hand. It has a donut, which is like a round rubber swimming tube for comfort and ease of sitting. Something called After Ease, which is a tincture to help afterbirth pains and cramping. An herbal afterbirth bath, which has herbs to soak in the tub. Burt's Bees Replenishing Flavor Lip Balm, a frigid bottle, which is just a version of a peri bottle, Repair Spray, which is like the Dermaplast, but it's a topical herbal spray to help with healing and tissues after birth, Arnica Tablets, uh, which are homeopathic tablets to help with swelling and inflammation, something called New Mother Pads, which are natural They're chlorine, perfume, and plastic-free postpartum pads. And another tincture called Baby Blues, which helps with emotional support and hormonal balancing. This is Amy Alton, an advanced registered nurse practitioner and a certified nurse midwife, also known as Nurse Amy, wishing you the best of health and good times are bad. Thanks for listening. Hey, besides getting a copy of our Survival Medicine Handbook, 
Don't forget to check out my entire line of medical kits and supplies at store.doomandbloom.net. You'll be glad you did. Okay, great answer from Nurse Amy, and I have nothing to add because talk about expert counsel material, man, that was badass. Anyway, next question I have is for Dan Oman on dealing with road rage. Dan, take it away. Hello, TSP listeners. This is Dan Oman answering your questions in regards to law enforcement and criminal justice matters. I got another good question today. Today it comes from Nate from Ohio. Nate wants to know how someone should handle a road rage conflict. Here are the details that Nate provided. He said he was driving on a back road and he was doing about seven miles over the speed limit, driving his Honda Civic, and a big Chevy, presumably a pickup truck he didn't specify, was following too closely. It was really close on his back bumper. Nate did what many people would do in that situation. Nate slowed down to a crawl. The Chevy accelerated and then passed Nate. The Chevy got ahead to an upcoming intersection and stopped. The driver, who was a male, got out of the Chevy. Nate said that he could not go backward or drive around the guy. Not wanting to be sitting in his Honda Civic with his seatbelt on, Nate got out of the car and had a heated exchange with the Chevy driver. Happily, Nate was able to de-escalate the conflict and both parties left without further incident. Road rage incidents are seriously dangerous. I've seen otherwise rational, normal people just absolutely lose their minds in road rage scenarios. People actually commit homicides over road rage incidents. With that said, this is a pretty serious survival topic. If you haven't been involved in a road rage conflict, chances are you know somebody that's very close to you that has been in one. So sooner or later, this is going to affect you. Nate wants to know what my recommendation is for handling that kind of situation. The first thing that I look at is avenue of escape. Now, in here, Nate is saying that he was not able to back up, nor was he able to drive around the Chevy that was in front of him. I don't know why that is, and I don't know if that's exactly correct. My first note about that is if you're coming up to a traffic light or a stop sign or wherever you may be, if you can't see your road underneath the car in front of you, then you are too close. And that means you're not going to be able to turn around in a tactical scenario. This was something ingrained in me in my law enforcement experience to always leave that sufficient gap between you and the car in front of you, especially when you're standing still at an intersection. This gives you an avenue of escape if things go bad. And I also don't know why Nick couldn't go backward. I don't know if there was a car behind him that was also too close and just he didn't have enough room to back up. I don't know. I don't have those details. And it could also have been that Nate had tunnel vision. As soon as he saw the driver of the Chevy getting out of the vehicle and he knew a confrontation was about to take place, it may have been that he was producing adrenaline and just hyper-focused on the driver and not necessarily paying attention to the potential avenues of escape and pulling forward to go around the driver was probably not a good option anyway if you could have done that in this scenario. If the driver had interpreted that as you trying to run over him, he could have, in his mind, justified easily at that point using deadly force if he had a firearm. But the best thing would have been an immediate retreat. I know it's not manly and it's not going to serve your ego, but it will keep you out of harm and less likely to have an unsolicited encounter with law enforcement. But for Nate, if he truly didn't have an avenue of escape, Calling 911 as soon as you realized the driver was getting out of his vehicle to confront you would have been a good step. 
If you call 911, give the dispatcher your location and the license plate of the Chevy. Get out of your car with your cell phone in your support hand. So in most cases, that's going to be your left hand, your non-dominant hand. So your dominant hand is not obstructed to getting to your firearm and keep your phone on speakerphone with a 911 operator on the line announce to the approaching driver that you have an open line with 911 and police are on the way this generally de-escalates a situation if it doesn't and there is an altercation at least you have help on the way the dispatcher knows where you are and the incident is being recorded through your phone with audio I do think getting out of the Honda was a good move, Nate. If your vehicle can't move, then you are trapped in the car. Getting out gives you options to flee on foot or defend yourself if necessary. Police officers are trained in a similar way as far as being outside of the vehicle. If you're in your vehicle, you're trapped, you're sitting duck, basically. Back before the computers and Wi-Fi were all in the patrol cars, police officers were trained to stand outside their police car to the rear of the vehicle on the passenger side away from the roadway and do all their warrant checks and registration checks there over their radio. So in a traffic stop scenario, if the driver that had been pulled over wants to engage the police officer in combat, they're getting out of the driver's side of the vehicle. Typically, the police officer has his patrol car between him and the driver, which gives him reactionary gap, which is ample space in order for him to react to a threat. And also, it throws the driver off. They're looking for the officer to be in the car, not standing on the backside of the vehicle. Nowadays, all the police cars have laptops in them with Wi-Fi, so you find officers sitting in their cars quite frequently to do these types of tasks, which puts them at more of a risk. I want to tell you real quick about a road rage incident I was involved in. I was a young police officer at the time. I was probably 24, 25 years old, and I was on my way home from the gym. I was driving on a four-lane county road. There were two lanes going in either direction with a median in the middle. I was driving in the right lane, and there was a pickup truck slightly behind me and into the left lane. Up ahead, in front of me in the right lane, a taxi cab pulled right down into the roadway. It wasn't so close where I had to slam on the brakes. I did have enough time to decide I can either brake and slow down for the taxi so I don't hit it, or I can speed up just slightly to get in front of the pickup truck and move over to the left lane and not get stuck behind the taxi cab that just pulled out in front of me. Being younger and not quite as wise as I am today, I decided that I would accelerate and get around the truck and turn into the left lane to get around the taxi cab. So I did that and I made the lane change and I was a little bit closer to the truck than I should have been. When I made the lane change, it wasn't so close that the truck had to slam on their brakes or even slow down at all. It wasn't close like that, but it was close to where it was kind of rude. I felt like a jerk as soon as I did. I was like, oh man, I shouldn't have done that. Well, the driver of the pickup truck agreed. He got quite upset with me and he started tailgating me. I just kept going. I did not engage him in any kind of conflict at that point. I just kept driving. And then when it came time for me to make my left turn, uh, Two miles ahead, I got into the left turn lane. When he was coming by to pass me in the left lane, I saw his window go down and a object come flying out of the window and then crash into my car. I wasn't quite sure what it was, but it was red and rectangular and kind of resembled a brick. And it 
made a loud impact when it hit my car. I could not believe this guy just threw something at my car as he drove by. I immediately snapped into police officer mode and thought, you can't do this. You cannot get away with doing that. So I started following him. We went down the road a few miles. I called 911. I spoke to a dispatcher and let her know what was going on, that I was following this vehicle that threw an object at my car. I gave her the license plate number, and she dispatched officers. I followed the truck. He pulled into a Home Depot. He knew I was following him, obviously, at that point. And he pulled into a parking space, and I stayed one aisle over. I kept my distance, and but he knew I was there still. And after about two or three minutes, he decided to pull out the parking lot again and go back on the roadway. I continued to follow him, and soon after pulling out on the roadway, three police officers showed up and affected the traffic stop. The officers spoke with the driver of the pickup truck first, and then they came to speak to me. I was just outside of my jurisdiction, so I did not personally know these police officers or anything like that, but I did let them know what happened, and I started off by telling them I did kind of a jerky driving maneuver which aggravated this guy, but then he threw something at my car and took it to a whole new level. One of the three police officers drove back to the intersection where the object was thrown at my car, and he found a chunk of wood. It was wood trim that had been painted red. He brought the piece of wood trim back to where the traffic stop was, and the officers, in plain view, could see a whole pile of wood trim that matched it in the guy's front seat. Apparently, the guy was a carpenter on his way to a job. Also right there in the center console of the vehicle was a loaded clock. The officers arrested the driver for terroristic acts, which was later dramatically reduced in court to disorderly conduct and a a small fine. This guy otherwise was a decent citizen with no criminal history and was a hardworking carpenter and just lost his mind in a road-related incident. And I think back to that situation, it gives me the chills sometimes thinking about how he had that Glock. If he had gotten out of his pickup truck with his Glock to confront me when we were in the Home Depot parking lot, I also was armed, and it would have been a bad day for us. I'm really glad it didn't end that way. So with that in mind, in hindsight, the best way I could have handled that situation was after he had thrown the chunk of wood at my car... I could have followed him just long enough to get his license plate number and then pulled over to a safe location and waited for the police to arrive to make a police report and make an insurance claim to repair any vehicle damage. Again, that's not manly. That doesn't serve my ego. It's not satisfying in any way, but it would have been so much safer. And ultimately, the same results would have occurred. Unless the vehicle had been stolen, then the police would have no difficulty finding out who the driver was and they could have followed up with an investigation. So I say all that to say the best thing you can do in these scenarios is always do your best to try and retreat from the situation and call 911. Get police involved as soon as you can for your protection. I guess my addition here, and and this is a lesson I've had to learn over the years because I'm a guy that you don't You don't go threatening me. You certainly don't go doing something threatening when I have my wife or my kid in the car. And I've been known to to bust a head or two in my life. I'll I'll leave it at that. But what I've, I've had to remind myself over the years in dealing with assholes on the road is that whenever you're dealing with somebody like that, you have somebody behaving irrationally. And it's probably irrational even for them, like the guy Dan mentioned, right? It's probably not the way they would normally behave. And they're in a heightened state, and you don't know what you're dealing with. And you can end up 
either being shot or having to shoot somebody. And it's our duty to avoid that as armed citizens, first of all. The next is, I know people have this, you know, they want to be manly thing, and you don't back down. Listen, if you back away from someone as much as is reasonable, and they continue to aggress to the point where you're forced to use force, whether it's physical, whether it's armed, whatever it is, then your case for why you used force is strong. Okay? Your case for why you used force is strong. If you aggravate the situation, no matter, no matter what happens, win, lose, or draw, or tragic outcome, your case for why you used force is weak. I mean, that, that's you have to think, and this is a problem, most of us think very well about how my action now will affect my life tomorrow until we get in a car. When we get in a car, we stop that link in our minds. We're surrounded by this giant bubble of steel and glass, and it's a lot like being online. I've seen people say shit to other people online. I know damn well they wouldn't say that at individual's face. And that's what happens in a car. There's a competitiveness in driving. People want it. You see it all the time. Somebody's trying to get in. The other guy won't let him in. Let him the hell in. He's marching onto the highway. And this stuff happens all the time. But you're dealing with the irrational. And, again, if you engage in a conflict when you're armed, even if you end up to the point where you end up having to use the fact that you're armed, the fact that you knew you were armed and you knew it could escalate and you pursued it anyway can be used against you, even if technically you were right. So you have to, you have to reestablish the freaking link that belongs in your subconscious to your conscience that what I'm doing now will have ramifications on what happens tomorrow. And just think, because you think you can kick the guy's ass and just because you think he deserves it doesn't mean that's reality. You have no idea the person that's in the other vehicle. And you have no idea if that person is someone that was just told this morning they're being served with divorce papers and their wife's suing them for the custody of their four kids and they're going to lose their business or they just got fired and 20 other things are lumped on their life. And they were thinking about shooting themselves in the head anyway. And then they cut you off and you blew the horn and gave them the finger and they started swerving their car around and you thought it was a good idea to chase them in a parking lot. You don't know. And for God's sakes, when you have your wife, your kids, etc. in a vehicle with you, you really have to think. You really have to think. And I know it's counter to what most people are, especially men. But there's a right way and a wrong way to handle situations. And ego and pride generally get in the way of it. If someone's that much of a problem that they really need their head kicked in, or they really need a bullet or they really need to end up arrested, or they really need an ass-kicking, or whatever it is, and you give them space, they will continue to push until justice is served, if they really need it. You don't know what's in that person's mind. Don't agitate a situation that's already dangerous. And you have to think beyond the tunnel vision. I see people do this shit. It's like, okay, yeah, you're pissed at him. You're willing to risk your ass. I guess he's willing to risk his ass. That's why the two of you are acting like assholes. But you're on a four-lane freaking highway with thousands of people around you risking their lives too. 
that's what you have to be thinking of when it comes to road rage. That's my addition. I got a lot of additions today, I guess. Next one uh, for Jeff Lawton, I won't have anything for because he is definitely the expert on large scale permaculture. Jeff, take this one away. Hi, this is Jeff Lawton here, and I'm coming to you from the country of Jordan. I'm 400 meters below sea level in the Dead Sea the lowest place on earth where we have a permaculture project that's been running for quite some time and uh, I have a set of interns outside they've done one week they're into their second week and um, we've got all kinds of things going on here and I'm answering a question here from someone from uh, Australia called Andre and uh, I had to ask for extra details because uh, it's in relation to uh, some land that Andre's bought, 200 acres. It's a large area of land, and some of it's quite steep. And um, they've got the property at a bargain price. It has two houses on it, so one can be rented out, and it really is a good price. I know the area. It's uh, in the subtropics at the northern end of the Sunshine Coast, um, about an hour inland. So it's subtropics, gets hot and dry in springtime, as tropical rains in the summer and because it's an hour in inland um, it gets a little bit frosty at the bottom of the valleys and a bit cool in the winter nights um, I used to live on the Sunshine Coast I know this area um, so I can give quite an accurate consultancy here um, because I'm familiar with the area now um, They've made some suggestions that um, they've, they're moving from Melbourne. Now, Melbourne's a Mediterranean climate, and it has winter rain, and um, it slows down in midwinter because it's cold, but it also has very hot, dry summers, the Mediterranean. So you actually get a double slowdown. So you get a slowdown midsummer because it gets so hot and dry. But distinctly, the hottest of the temperate climates, and temperate climates have winter rain, and a summer dry now subtropics is tropical it's the coolest of the tropical climates really and you have summer rain and winter dry and you particularly have a dry hot spring when the temperatures rise but the rain doesn't start so early so you have a sort of desert spring which is evaporation way over rainfall then you have a tropical summer with lots of rain and high temperatures quite warm high temperatures and then you have a, a temperate type winter but the winter has a frost right in the middle which is not typically temperate and it starts in a desert climate ends in a sorry it starts in a tropical humid tropical climate the autumn into summer it goes into temperate temperatures but has a frost right in the middle of the what is something like a temperate summer but it's actually a subtropical winter and it ends up in a desert with rising temperatures and not rising rain for quite a while. So not exactly what most people realise about the tropics. And you're moving from one place to another. Uh, you've got to change your, your, your techniques, your, your approaches. Now, Andre wants to uh, spread beneficial weeds because he wants to destock from 50 uh, cattle to 10 to manage the property. And uh, some areas are very steep, and they're going to be very difficult to maintain with a tractor. And you definitely won't be able to go uh, across contour with a tractor. You have to go up and down slope. Um, and the cattle are degrading the steep slopes, but so will a tractor. So they're ideally put back in the forest, and that's not so easy in this climate. Now, Andre suggested to spread beneficial weeds, such as nettle, comfrey, and dandelion. 
<laughs> now, um, the weeds in this climate are not anything like nettle, comfrey, and dandelion. You might be able to grow nettle, comfrey, and dandelion, but only in a garden sense or in little pockets. Most of the weeds in the subtropics are two to three meter high woody bushes like groundsel bush, uh, halmifolia, uh, Bactris halmifolia, and um, lantana, and, um, and, and, and things like um, small trees like, like acacias. Um, it, it, it goes, it's going towards tropics and you can't spread nettle and comfrey across a landscape that's going to go into bushes and shrubs and be a lot more uh, weed aggressive than that. So I'm, I'm, I'm concerned for Andre's initial approaches. Now, um, so what we have is quite a lengthy reply. So um, it's a lot more land than he expected to end up with, and that's an issue in these climates. He's in an agricultural area. Um, and uh, he basically wants to uh, create a self-sufficient homestead and also earn an income off the land. Um, and he, he admits he could probably do that in five acres and not necessarily 200, and that's the problem here. Um, the asset is the problem, the size of the land and how you're going to get out of those steep slopes. And it's going to cost fencing or machine or one or the other because the cattle won't... If, if you're undergrazed, they'll let a lot of weeds come through and you'll get into problems with your neighbours who won't like the weeds um, and yet they won't completely uh, manage it for you either and then it's too steep for a tractor and you may not have a tractor that's going to get up on those steep slopes like a four-wheel drive tractor so you're you're in a bit of catch-22 so um so it actually says that um it, it, it is is he intends to incorporate his weeds across the property and is He's really not sure. Well, I'm telling you, it's not going to happen. It, it isn't going to work. Um, and um, he, he also says that he's probably going to have to buy a tractor and a slasher. And with those steep slopes, it's ideally going to be a four-wheel drive. If it's a two-wheel drive, you're going to have to only go out in quite dry conditions. Be very, very careful how you slash only up and down the hill. Because um, most of those slopes are beyond the capacity of a normal tractor. And um, unless you can keep the cows off that section, which means grazing, uh, fencing, or at least electric fencing, it won't recover quickly. And there's way too much area just to plant trees on. And you're going to have to plant the trees at exactly the right time. So you're going to have to plant them just before the rainy season. So ideally, you deep rip on contour with a chisel plow. A yeoman's plow would be great, but any old chisel plow will do. Or even deep rip with a bulldozer, which is cheap and easy to do on contour and then fence those areas off stand back plant a lot of pioneer legume trees stand back and let the weeds come through there will be a lot of noxious weeds uh, you, he's worried about rat's tail but that's actually a pasture weed and you'll be out of pasture in no time and into woody weeds and, and a lot of those areas need to go into forest and you're probably not going to have farm forestry across them without a lot of investment in time and money. So you really got to let his, some of those steep areas go through a weedy set of succession and then through into um, native forest. And they're going to go into 
You're probably going to get privet. You're probably going to get camphor laurel, which you'll have to manage. You're going to add a whole load of acacia and lantana. And then eventually it will come through in a eucalypt and eucalypt understory. And you can kind of influence it with some other trees that be of value here and there. But you really... It doesn't sound like you have the large area experience to really get on top of this. And I don't... I'd, I'd hate to see you get into trouble. So um, it's got the idea of spreading beneficial weeds. Now... <laughs> The weeds we're going to have to talk about in herbaceous growth are definitely not those that you've mentioned, uh, nettle, comfrey and dandelion, although you can get those in a gardening sense here and there. Um, uh, you are going to annoy the neighbours because there are, I'm, I'm going to guarantee you that you are going to get some local noxious weeds. And you've just bought, Andre tells me, he's just bought an acre worth of cover crop of buckwheat, millet and mung bean and they're not going to do much either. Actually, the millet, the Japanese millet, is very fast carbon crop, but you need super aggressive cover crop. Cowpea is very good. Vignus sinensis is very good. Sorghum is probably one of the better carbon crops to mix with it, um, but you really could probably go for Dolichus lab lab, which will perennialize a bit and is a nightmare of a fast legume, but that's kind of what you want. You want to get into those fast legume cover crops that are really smash it. Now, my advice is to buy um, four acres worth of seed and put it on one acre of each crop. So you've got enough to cover one acre, and I'd say put that on quarter of an acre, but it's the wrong crops. Buckwheat, no good. Mung bean, no good. Millet's okay, but it's not very large. Good for recovering after earthworks, Japanese millet. I would definitely go for inoculated cowpea as one of your great ones. And, and if you're game, and I would be, go for Dolichus lab lab as well. And sorghum as your, cow, as your cover crop. Now buy enough for f to cover four acres um, of, of sorghum and put it on one acre put enough for four acres of cowpea and put it on the same acre and put get enough for four acres of um, Dolichus lab lab and put it on the same acre and do that right across and I can guarantee you you'll dominate that area and there won't be enough room for a lot of those woody weeds and you can then put in the trees that you actually probably pr prefer to grow but really you've got a lot of area here and those steep areas are going to take some management and they're going to have to be fenced off from the cows. Now, the cows are going to love to get on those legumes, of course, because they're, <laughs> they're high in nitrogen and high in protein. So you're really going to have to fence them out of it. They're really going to look at that and think that's the best part of the farm. They're going to want to cl clamber through onto that steep section. So you've got some challenges here. Luckily, your 10 cows are going to be reasonably well fed. Uh, but you are going to need some cow management. And you are going to need a tractor. Now, um, you've also made an unusual thing here that say that you, you, uh, you don't have a tractor at this stage and you reckon even planting an acre of cover crop with compacted soil without one is a struggle. You're trying to get my hands on a broadfoot. We can't find a really good price supply. Look, in, in Canberra, Gundaroo tillers at Canberra have a great broad fork and they have great tools as well. Gundaroo tillers, look them up online. They're in Gundaroo in the capital territory of Canberra. Um, we buy their broad forks, but you can't broad fork an acre very easily unless the rainy season's already started. I mean, really, I mean, broad forking an acre? <laughs> Put the spandex on and turn it into a video. It'll be really funny. It's not that easy have a look at our website zaytuna.com and i'm on the f on their broad forking f uh 
<sighs> we brought forth 15 meter beds that are 1.2 meters wide, three of them in the morning. And I can tell you that's quite an exercise. You can see me doing it. And that's lovely main crop, soft, sandy soil. And I can imagine you trying to get into that clay soil up the back of Gympie with a broad fork over an acre. It's going to be one hell of a six months worth of early morning work to do that. Um, nah, nah, great for your garden, but. Let's get it. Let's get into a bit of reality here. It's going to be tractor work. You've got 200 acres here. Um, it's not going to be easy just to take it from this sort of mismanaged cattle pasture into a mixed farm. Now, you've also thought that you could just plant all this stuff, you know, your uh, um, buckwheat, millet and mung bean, even if it did grow, and then collect the seed after and repeat the process year by year. Hey, Andre, you're in the subtropics, man. This stuff just rots on the ground. It, it, you're in decomposition central. You're going towards the tropics. You can't collect seed off this stuff. There's birds everywhere. There's ants everywhere. There's all kinds of things. There's decomposition happening all the time. Even if you're using Dolichus Lab Lab, even if you're using cowpea, even if you're using sorghum, you have a hell of a job collecting all that seed. You're better off letting the birds eat it and bringing the phosphate with their pup. This is a rampant climate, you know, it just don't happen like that. It, it's much, 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 much cheaper to go back down the road and buy the cheap seed from the agricultural supplies than sit, think of yourself as a seed saver that's going to go out and cover the land in cover crop. By the time you get there, it's going to be five metres high in legume trees, like native weed noxious trees that the neighbours are going to be worried about. So uh, slow down on those ideas. You're going to have a bit of a reality check here. And um, just take it easy. You're going to have to get into a little bit more dominance with rampancy with the right crops, a bit of mechanical conditioning of the soil with a tractor, and then uh, concentrate on your home garden and uh, keep your eye on those back slopes. I'll give you some help at, at times if you want to get in touch um, and uh, take lots of photos, take lots of videos, send them to me. I'll do my best to help you at a distance. Just because you want them, Jack's mates, that's all. Okay. Now, anything else? Yeah. So, Andre works for the Australian Certified Organic Assessors Org Organic Compliance of Organic Farms in South East Queensland. It's a great re resource of understanding what commercial horticulture-related enterprises do and don't do well. I think it's through this that I'll work out what I want to grow commercially. Uh, yeah. yeah, maybe. Uh, depends how much of a workaholic you are. Um, I think you're going to work out best in your home garden when you feed yourself and your family as much as you can from your home garden and some things will become extremely obvious like things like turmeric grows like weed and fetch weeds and fetches a high price um, things like like galangal fetch a high price check out things like herba mate which is a tea um, you know unusual niche crops are great and of course box vegetables if you really want to go for it selling them in gimpy or whatever um, but you're going to learn everything you need to know in your self-sufficient um, garden. As long as you're not prejudiced to what your family eats, um, your main crops are probably not going to be potato. Your main starch crops are probably going to be maize in summer, sweet potato, um, climbing yam, dioscorea quadrilingus, um, and um, things like taro on your wetter spots. Um, it's not likely to be potato. Potato will be my, more like a gourmet crop during winter. Um, it's much going to be much easier to grow cassava, which is real easy. 
Um, and once you have your main crop starches and then all your fancy fiddly, fiddly little bits that you get in your garden, which is really Sesame Street Permaculture 101, too easy to be a super diverse permi garden grower, then um, off you go, you're fine, and you can select what grows really, really easy that most people don't realise. Again, I can help you. I'm in a very similar climate in northern New South Wales. I've lived on the Sunshine Coast. I've consulted in your area. Good luck, mate. Need any help? Let me know. I hope this has been useful to you viewers out there. See you later, all you survival podcast people from Jordan in the Dead Sea Valley, 400 metres below sea level. Check you later. Next, I have a question uh, for Brandon Todd on what's called the shift debit card for Bitcoin, which basically eliminates fees on small transactions. And how do we do that? Because that's one of the big problems with Bitcoin. Brandon, take it away. Hello, everyone. This is Brandon from CryptoSkim.com here to answer another question for the expert council. This question comes in for Tim, where Tim asks... I have a question for Brandon about using the shift debit card for Bitcoin transactions that claim to have no fees associated with small transactions, which I thought was the major problem with Bitcoin currently. Details. I was watching a video from Brock on blockchain.com, and the speaker mentioned a debit card that had no transaction fees associated with the use of Bitcoin. I was under the impression that the fees for using Bitcoin directly were in the three-plus dollar range at the moment, And that prevented small transactions. Uh, The card has a one-time fee of $10 USD and no fees on transactions unless you use an ATM, which there is a $2.50 fee plus the fee for ATM itself, which, when applicable, how does this company absorb those costs and still operate? All right. Great, Great question from Tim. So first off, let's talk about how this is possible. Actually, we'll get to that in a minute. You know what, Tim, you were right. Bitcoin does have probably the highest fees amongst any of the major cryptocurrencies today. This does make it infeasible right now for, uh, for to use Bitcoin for small retail on-chain transactions at the moment. For instance, if you have a transaction fee of $3 or more, then obviously you can't absorb that or pass it on in the sale for items that cost under $100 or so. Um You know, percentage-wise, the fee would be unreasonable. This is a problem for small-scale retailers accepting Bitcoin as a direct payment today. This high-fee issue is also why many projects are moving to the Ethereum blockchain because, at the moment, Ethereum has much smaller transaction fees and much quicker block times than Bitcoin. Okay, so now let's talk about these debit cards. Uh, there are a number of companies offering such cards like BitPay, Coinbase, and WageCam, just to name a few. What all these companies have in common is that they have access or operate an exchange which has a big pool of both Bitcoin and dollars. So essentially what happens is that when you get one of these cards, you send a Bitcoin transaction to them, which you pay the, you know, you pay the fee for and it shows a balance on your card in dollars. Now what just happened is that you sent a Bitcoin transaction to Coinbase and they sold it at the current exchange rate on their exchange GDAX, G-D-A-X for dollars. They don't execute an on-chain Bitcoin transaction every time you use your card. So that's where some people get confused. You just have a balance with them in dollars now, which gets debited every time you use your card. Uh, you know, Brian Young explained uh, part of this 
uh, pretty good on episode 2005 if you want to go back and, and get a better understanding of how Coinbase works on the back end. So to sum it up, you know, you send a Coinbase you send Coinbase a Bitcoin transaction, of which you pay the fee, just like any other transaction. Then they immediately sell it for dollars at the current price. After that, it works just like any other old Visa card. So, you know, I have one of these cards. I have a, I think I got a, yeah, I got a BitPay card. Um, I haven't used it a whole lot, but, you know, I thought it'd be kind of nice to have it. And if I want to just quickly spend some Bitcoin um, you know, I could do that. You can load it up pretty quickly, uh, depending on how, how fast the blockchain is, is working that day. Like, I know that there's been times where the mempool has gotten really high in Bitcoin in the last few months, and you have to send a, a, a much higher fee or bump your fee up to get it to go through in the, in the next half hour. But, you know, generally speaking, you pay a higher fee or a lower fee based on the mempool, but you can get a transaction through in Bitcoin within a half hour that's confirmed. So, I mean, you can have your card loaded up in a half hour, however much Bitcoin you want, and then they sell it, you know, on the exchange, and then uh, it works just like any other Visa card. So, um, I have used it from time to time. It's kind of cool to have one of those. Um, it's, it's a great talking piece, too, if you want to talk to a merchant about Bitcoin. Um, so, anyway... So that's basically it. Hopefully that answers your question. Uh, again, this is Brandon from CryptoSkim.com wishing you all a great day. Good stuff, and it makes sense. They're allocating it across a large number of transactions and, and, and doing individual large transactions instead of large numbers of small transactions. So it's basically a banking technique from way back. Anyway, next question I have. You know, just kind of the fun question and, and, and something to think about for making that great cup of coffee tomorrow morning. Nicole Sauce of Hollow Roast Coffee and Living Free in Tennessee and all other kinds of great things on making the perfect cup of coffee. Howdy, TSP. Nicole Sauce here with a question from Jamie. Jamie asks, how does someone make an excellent cup of coffee at home? Details. Over the past eight years of listening to TSP, I've learned how to do a lot of things for myself to the point that my wife and I rarely eat out because we can make better food at home. I rarely buy beer because I can make it better at home. I rarely call a guy because I can fix most things better and cheaper on my own, and the list goes on and on. I make my own coffee at home, but I have to admit that the cup of coffee I get from the local coffee shop is better than what I make at home. It drives me crazy. What do I need to do differently so that I can make a cup or pot of coffee at home that is better than the coffee shop? Is there a technique, a piece of equipment? Help. Okay, wow. Well, the answer to this is it depends. There are many, many ways to make the perfect cup of coffee. And in your shoes, I would find out a few things from your local shop before I dove in too deeply. And the first thing I would ask is what are they using to brew the coffee you like so much? Is it a drip maker? Is it an espresso maker? Are they doing a pour over cone? Do they have a French press? Like how are they making the cup that you love? Then the next thing I would find out is where are their beans from and how fresh are they and what is the grinder that they're using? Like, how are they grinding it? Are they grinding it right there and then serving it to you and you have something pre-ground at home? That's going to make a huge difference if that's the case. Um, if they have a specialty bean they sell there, buy it and try it out and see if it's the beans. So, they're, you know, just find out what they're doing, where their beans are from and what they're, you know, like 
process is for making the good cup of coffee. And then the other thing I'd look at is what is it about the coffee you make at home that's not quite up to par? Is it the temperature? Is it the flavor? Is it not dark enough? Is it too dark? In other words, how is the coffee you're making at home different than the coffee you're getting at the store? And because if you're comparing something you're making from an automatic drip coffee maker to an espresso machine, for example, that right there is a problem and that right there is an easy fix as long as you buy the right espresso maker. Or if the water you put in comes from a faucet with chlorine flavors in it or any other funny flavor and the coffee shop uses distilled water in theirs, that will make a huge difference because how the water tastes going in impacts how the coffee tastes coming out. So now let's talk about coffee and making a great cup of coffee. Um, it starts with me with the bean and then the roast and then the grind, then the water, temperature and the method. All of these things make a very different cup of coffee. And with all of those variables, there are millions of different <laughs> results that you can have. Okay. So it starts with a great bean like wine. Coffee beans have so many flavors that you could spend all year trying a different bean with every cup of coffee you ever make, noting different flavors, and there would be no right answer for personal preference. Some folks really love Havalia coffee. To me, that stuff tastes like chalk. It's disgusting. But I know people who buy it like by subscription week over week. And freshly roasted is, of course, better than one that you have had stored for a long time. And grinding it right before you use it yields a better flavor from the bean. However, a freshly roasted bean that has flavors that you don't like will never come as close to tasting as good as an older bean that you love. So my two current favorite coffee beans are the blend we are currently selling at hollerroast.com, which is a Brazilian pea berry mixed with a varietal from Ecuador. And those two beans alone, if like if you have one of them alone, they lack a little something. But when you put them together, they make a cup with overtones of chocolate, caramel, cherry, and have a robust mouthfeel. And then the other one would be Pete's Coffee, which is a major, like they distribute all over the country. And it's called Major Dickinson's. It is, it has been my, one of my favorite coffees since I was like 20. So it has more of a nutty, but still caramely flavor and a lighter mouthfeel than the Holler Roast. So if my choice was a six month old bag of Major Dickinson's or a freshly roasted bag of Starbucks, guess which one I would choose? I would go with the Major Dickinson's because the bean is better. Like the bean mixture blend there is much better. Okay, so next, there's the roast. Coffee roasts run from very light to very dark, and the darker the roast, the more you are enjoying the flavor from a roasting profile instead of the flavors of the bean. Though different dark roasted beans result in very different flavors. So to me, different beans shine, they, they like, come into their own or shine at different roast levels. Holler Roast's default is dark, not espresso. And some of my clients request medium. And so we send them medium roasted coffee because they prefer it that way. I have other clients that prefer it Italian, which is about as dark as you can go. I mean, with in fact, Jack's buddy David likes a very dark roast. He has his own setting on my roaster because he likes it so roast. So if, if you want the David setting, you just have to ask me for it. And then our favorite knife maker, who I almost invited in to do this with me because he knows an awful lot lot about good coffee, uh, prefers a blend of our dark roast and our medium. So he, I think he goes 50-50. And by the way, if you're interested in trying that one, look for the Roman roast over on my website, Roarman. It's hard to say your last name. 
Patrick, but um, we do have the Roarman roast up, and that is the blend of the medium and dark. So while you are working on your perfect cup, try different levels of roasts from light to very dark, just so you can decide what your preference is. Are you more into that lighter roast, or do you prefer something a little darker? And then try making them through several methods, because you may find I like a dark roast through the drip, uh, through the espresso machine, but I prefer a medium roast through the drip maker. It all depends, right? Okay, so next up we have the grind. And this is where I am not as picky as most. So all the experts tell me that the burr grinder is the best way to go, and that's because the beans up a, end up a consistent size. I have a commercial grinder here now. It does a great job, right? But if you undergrind coffee, you will end up with a cup that looks like tea and doesn't taste very good. If you overgrind the beans, you'll end up clogging up your filter. Water stays on the beans too long, ends up bitter. So there's a lot that can happen with the grind. If you have one of those rotating grinder thingies with the little button, you know, just pay attention to which grinds are working better for you. Um, I have a couple of grinders I've heard are great. I don't use them myself because I now my machine does everything for me now. I do have a burr grinder in that one. Um, but yeah, play around with the grind a little bit and getting a handle on that preference is best. But on the other hand, if you've tweaked your bean and your roast in, the grind's not going to have as big of an impact other than on how long the water stays on the bean and you can tweak so many other things. So let's talk about water. I prefer a coffee made from hard water. The density is noticeable in the mouthfeel for me. So luckily, I live where I have a wonderful spring with awesome hard water. And so when I'm making coffee at home, the water, from my perspective, is perfect. And when I make it other places, it's not so perfect because it's usually not as hard. On the other hand, many people want an absolutely neutral water for that coffee, and that means not as hard without any extra weird flavors. Distilled water or spring water from the store can get you there, and it may even be possible for you to filter your city water to get a good non-invasive flavor in your cup. Really, this is the same thing for brewing beer, right? Make sure your water is good or you can't really judge anything else. In fact, I learned this year that hollow roast made from water that tastes a little bit by, like apple juice is not very good because I, I had some made from water stored in apple juice containers and the apple came through. And that was a hard lesson learned for me because I'm used to my hollow roast tasting really good. And, and I was like, okay, so don't add a shot of apple juice to your coffee in the morning, guys. And that, this brings us to temperature. Last month, uh, let me, sorry, last March at Jack's workshop, we served hollow roast and we also served the worst cup of coffee I have ever had in my life on day one, first pot in the morning. Why? Because when the first two pots were made, they ran at the same time and the breaker blew, which means they didn't finish brewing. The coffee was sort of lukewarm and it never got all the way up to a good temperature. And it basically, I think it tasted like brown colored lemon each hawk. Um, people were so desperate for caffeine, though, they drank it. Uh, but I was super embarrassed. And I made sure only one coffee maker ran at a time after that so people would not have to repeat that uh, experience. So, yeah, it, it brewing coffee tastes best at a temperature just below boiling, in my opinion. The official word is behind, between 165 and 185 degrees. However, when you're at a formal cupping, what you do is you put the coffee grounds in the bottom of a, a cup 
and you boil water and let it come just off of boiling. Pour that over the grounds and set a timer for four minutes. So for four minutes, that water is cooling down a little bit. And then you smell the coffee, you taste the coffee, trying not to get the grounds in your teeth. And, and that is a cupping. So that's when you're tasting multiple beans to see which ones you like. That's almost like going to a wine tasting, right? So I like to depend on, on some of those things for ideal temperature. So, uh, you know, put boiling water in a, in a cup for four minutes. It's going to come off of that boiling temperature. It's not going to burn your tongue because if your water is too hot, you burn your tongue and can't taste anything for the rest of the day. If it's below that, you sort of start getting this yummy, bitter dishwasher water flavor in the, in the cup. However, this doesn't hold true for cold brew, but that's a totally different topic. I'm assuming your question is for a hot cup of coffee. If it's not, um, yeah, try, try cold brew because cold brew is fantastic stuff. Okay, so now we're on to method, which is probably where you thought I'd start. So there are many, many ways to make coffee, as I've said, and I will give you a few, like three things to try first. And then if these aren't working for you, you can, you can reach out to me. Let me know if there's, you know, if you need more, more input. Um, first of all, if you are using an electric drip maker and it has the flat basket, throw it away. If you are using an electric drip maker and it has a cone, that's okay. But here's what often happens with those. There are residues in the works of the coffee maker that bring out yucky flavors. I went on vacation with Mark about a week ago and got to the condo we rented and the, you know, like open the coffee maker had mold in it because whoever cleaned that place forgot to look in the coffee maker. So it had been sitting there for God knows how long growing mold. And so I like cleaned it as best I could, brewed a pot of coffee. It tasted horrible. It tasted like lemon. I, if you can't tell, I don't like citrus overtones in my coffee. Um, and I was like, man, my coffee doesn't do well in a drip maker. And then I thought, well, maybe the mold is the problem. So I got a bunch of salt and uh, made salt water and then put that through the maker and then made another pot after that. And it was Fine. So, you know, drip makers, make sure they're really clean. They have ways of putting vinegar through them. When you're at a vacation rental, you may not have vinegar. Salt water works pretty well. Um, and you want to make sure it's clean so it's not adding weird extra flavors. Uh, if you want to play with this though, go to the store and just buy one of those pour through cones that makes a single cup at a time. Like you put it over your mug, you pour the water through. You know what I'm talking about? It's a cone. They're like, Less than five bucks, you get the cone filters, the paper filters, and just give it a shot. Um, the best way to do that is to put your coffee in the cone, pour a little bit of water to get the grounds wet, and wait 10 to 20 seconds while that just settles into the grounds, and then pour through your cup to to make the actual cup of coffee. The reason you're doing this is you're wetting the beans. You're like priming the pump for them to be ready to release their fantastic flavors to your cup of coffee. That will help you play around a little bit with um, grind. It will help you test different waters. It will help you find your ideal temperature and um, volume of grounds to the cup of coffee. I think you'll be impressed with a hand-poured cup of coffee through a drip cone. It's not very expensive to do that. Okay. So next espresso is awesome. I've already had two shots today. Can you tell? I use an espresso maker I have for years 
and the reason I like it is the water is not on the beans as long as with a drip maker or French press. Therefore, it doesn't pull out as many acids, and Nicole doesn't like a lot of lemony flavor in her coffee. It also takes out less caffeine because it's not sitting on the beans as long to take out so much caffeine. Um, Espresso works by compacting the grounds into a small area so that there's consistent spaces between the grounds and then it pressures the uh, pressure pushes the water through. There are two kinds of espresso makers you can buy if you're going to buy one. One uses pressure and one uses steam. You want a pressure-driven espresso maker if you're going to go this route, and that is an investment. I don't think I've seen one, a good one, for less than 150 bucks in a long time. So that's uh, something to think about if you're going to go this route. If you're going to test this, uh, find out if you have a friend who has an espresso maker to see if you like it before you do it. On the other hand, if you get one of those like Mr. Coffee steam-driven espresso makers at Goodwill for a dollar, it doesn't hurt to just test it out that way, too. It Just know that that espresso is different than the pressure-driven espresso. And I basically could do a whole segment on this topic of espresso makers and what to buy and what to test and what to look for. So I'm going to leave this right there and let you walk down your coffee cup making adventure. So the third way I will use, and this is what I use when I'm traveling and don't know what I'm getting into for coffee makers. This is the French press. French presses are fantastic. I know I was just denigrating it a little earlier because I like espresso better, but a French press will make you a great dark cup of coffee for the money. I think it's, it's a really good bang for your buck. It tastes better than drip in my opinion and costs you, you know, 10 to 20 bucks to buy one, depending on what you get. Uh, the more expensive ones are better. I like, I have not gotten one of these yet, but I'm like coveting the stainless steel one because I'm wandering around with a, you know, a glass carafe bottom in my luggage when I travel, which is going to not end well one day. So the only downside of the French press is if you are slow to drink your coffee that is in the press, it will fall below temperature and start getting It'll start taking, tasting like old stale coffee that's been sitting around too much. So if you're going to go this route, get a French press that is a good size for what you like to drink. So when I make French press coffee, I put the grounds in, you pour the water in, and then I put the, the lid on, which has like a plunger that when you, when you let the coffee grounds steep for a little while in the water, you plunge it down. I only leave it on my beans for 60 seconds. Some people prefer to go up to four minutes. Um, again, I, when I'm doing it, I'm trying to get closer to an espresso-like flavor. I don't want too much acid in, in my cup, so I'll leave it for 60 seconds. That means I use more grounds than other people in my French press. But you make it, and then you pour that straight into your cup and drink it. Don't let it sit around for a long time. I think you'll find that a French press yields a great cup of coffee. However, the the very end of a French press often has... Um, well, dregs is probably the best way to describe it. So a French press, the negative point is as you get further down, you're going to have some of those grounds that didn't quite stay on the other side of that fl- plunger come out into your cup of coffee. Personally, I don't mind those. But if you're trying to outdo your coffee shop, I'm pretty certain they're not giving you chewy coffee. So just think about that with the French press. That last cup can be a doozy, kind of like the last um, glass of wine in, in some really good bottles. Okay, Jamie. 
I hope this has given you some directions to go to find your ideal cup of coffee. You will notice I'm assuming you're drinking it black. So if you are adding things to your coffee like cream and sugar, make sure your cream input is a high quality one because that is something that will impact the flavor. Uh, I didn't want to go down that road too far because we were talking about coffee and not milk. Anyway, if you want to know more, shoot me an email at NicoleSauce at gmail.com or head on over to my website, livingfreeintennessee.com, where you can find lots of podcast episodes as well as order hollow roast coffee. Thanks again for the question. And Jack, thanks for your patience on this one. Make it a great week, everyone. Okay, so good stuff from Nicole. And I want to kind of finish up with this. And I've seen this batted around Facebook a lot. And I've seen a lot of, I don't know, probably the type of people that we talked about in the road rage incident talk a lot of shit about it. Um, but in the middle of the Vegas shoot, actually after the shooting had stopped, but they weren't really sure what was going to happen next, uh, the, the, the concert that was going on was uh, big and rich. And, and country music singer John Rich was armed with a handgun which he gave to an off-duty law enforcement officer. And I've heard people say the following, why the hell would the off-duty law enforcement officer not be armed? My understanding is that at that venue, no matter who you were, if you weren't on duty, you couldn't carry. So even the off-duty law enforcement officer that generally can carry just about anywhere was prohibited from carrying at the event. I have not confirmed that, but that is a reasonable thing. Whereas people like John Rich, who were talent, came in through the back, would not be subject to such types of screening. And I guarantee you that, that Big and Rich travel with armed security. Keep that in mind, please, as we examine this. So what happens is somewhere in all of this, they scramble off the stage. People try to get their bearings. All kinds of shit's going on. He talks to a guy. The guy's an off-duty cop. He's going to go forward and try to figure out what's going on. John says, hey, here's a gun. Take my gun. And then we have... A whole bunch of different reactions, but there's a whole segment of people basically crapping on John Rich for doing this. I would never do that. Well, if you'll use the word never in that situation, let me tell you what kind of person you are. Remember earlier when I talked about the kind of person that doesn't understand that the actions they have today have consequences tomorrow? And that every situation you have to think that way and you have to be a thinking person, you're not a thinking person. Now, maybe you are, but when you make that statement, you're claiming to be Gnostic in a situation that you're agnostic to. What the hell does that mean? Watch Jack breaking out Latin on a Friday. Gnostic means to know. Agnostic means to not know. That's what those two words actually mean. So... You're agnostic to a situation, and you're speaking as though you're Gnostic to it, because you're also using words like never. Not just in this instance this was a mistake, but this would always be a mistake when you can't possibly have knowledge of the situation that may occur. So let's get, let me give you a couple situations that could occur. There's a mass shooting at a mall instead of Las Vegas. People are hurt and wounded all over the place. There's a guy running the other direction there's a guy there that you know has ability don't worry about how much but he has he has capability he is unarmed you have a gun you're wounded you can't pursue the individual well, I'll never give him my gun 
Maybe you shouldn't. I don't know. What's the totality of the situation? I'm willing to admit that I'm agnostic to it. Are you? Or are you going to claim that you have knowledge of the full situation? Is there a reasonable threat that there's going to be somebody coming the other way? And you're laying there defenseless with a bullet in your leg. Or does it look like there's the guy, this guy's going after him, give him your gun? Here's another situation. You're in a situation like the Pulse nightclub. There's a guy with an AK-47 opening up on the whole place. You're armed. You've taken cover. The guy sitting next to you is a freaking Navy SEAL. Now, I'm not talking about the guy that claims to be a Navy SEAL in the bar or the Special Forces guy that always says they're always seventh group, right? You know what I'm talking about, the bullshitter. You know the guy's a freaking operator. He doesn't have a gun on him. You know he's better than you. Do you try to play hero or do you acknowledge your limitation and admit that someone better than you for the task at hand is there and empower them? These are just a couple situations. These are just, now let's examine John Rich's situation. John Rich is not just named Rich, he is Rich. He's rich as shit. Translation, that gun financially means absolutely nothing to him. I'm sure he's not even worried about whether or not he's going to get it back. Number two, John Rich is not going to go charging into that situation forward. His security detail is going to take him and unass him from the AO. To the point where if he tells them to stand down, they're probably going to act like Secret Service and grab him by his John Rich ass and drag him out of there. This is what he can do in this situation. I guarantee you he has an armed security detail. So by giving his personal weapon away, he is not left defenseless and he's empowered someone who's at least reasonably qualified to respond to the situation at hand. Additionally, I highly doubt that John Rich is running around training with Navy SEALs or SWAT teams. It is most likely the case that that police officer is as much better prepared to handle the situation than he is, than a Navy SEAL is, better, better qualified to handle it than most of us. See, being a man is not just about being brave and taking risks and doing what needs to be done in a situation. It's also about being willing to evaluate the situation and determine how you can best contribute to saving yourself and others in that situation. And I'm not saying he did the right thing. I'm saying it's impossible for anybody to sit back Monday, Monday morning quarterback it and say he did the wrong thing. It's an asinine stance And you don't know what you would have done. A lot of people, I would have done this and I would have done that. The people that usually say that were the ones that would have probably ended up like little blubbering bitches on the ground crying and whining instead of actually doing something. It's always the people with the biggest freaking mouths about what I would have done that, that are the ones that tend to do the wrong things. What would I have done? I'll tell you what I would have done. I don't know. I know that I could have been 10 feet From, you know, from two different points, point A and point B, ten feet apart, and what went, went around, on around me could have changed whatever I would have done. Did the guy's face next to me splatter with blood and blood splatter on my face? Or did I see somebody ten feet away get hit and see an avenue of egress to get the hell out of the way and assess the situation? Which one of those happened? What I'm going to do is dependent on which one of those happened. Am I at the edge of the crowd where I can jump over a barrier and I'm outside of it? That's cowardly. No, that's freaking smart. Get out and start dragging other people the hell out. What I'd like to believe I would have done is assuming I didn't get hit right away, 
grabbed anybody by the ass that I could have and started getting people out of there instead of laying down on the ground. Laying down on the ground with somebody shooting at you from above makes you a bigger, not a smaller target. You present greater surface area to the rounds landing on the ground. Am I going to say that everybody should have known that? No. Because for a while they couldn't tell where the shots were coming from. I don't have gnosis or knowledge of exactly what the hell it was like to be there. I can only take the secondhand information from those experienced it firsthand and draw certain conclusions. I do know that the overall strategy of everybody laying down on the ground when they're getting shot at is a bad idea. I do know that we should be teaching people in these situations to do what I've said repeatedly, to do what I said when they talked about Sandy Hook. And they put all the children in a corner to keep them safe. Get out, get out, get out, get out. Go, go away from the threat. Get away from the threat. Get off the X. Move. Now, in this situation, there might not have been a right choice. Because when you got a guy praying and spraying from 30-odd floors up, Firing at full automatic, and no matter how that happened, that's the rate of fire. It's happenstance. You don't know. But you have to play the odds in any situation. And if somebody's actually shooting at people, as in taking aim, which usually they are, it's harder to hit somebody moving than somebody sitting still. And it's damn sure harder to kill somebody running away or charging you to break your freaking neck than it is to hit somebody cowering in, a, in, a, in, a, in a, a bathroom or behind a blockade. You take cover, you assess, and then you act. You don't sit there and cower and be quiet if you're in a closed-off room. And, and one of the conversations that we should be having right now is how to respond if you are in one of these situations. And it's something that I have not seen our media do, whether it's the right-wing media or the left-wing media at all in any of these instances. They're all, what can we do to prevent it? Well, the reality is you're not going to prevent things like this from happening. If it's not a gun, it'll be a car. This guy that did this was a private pilot. And it, it, it seems like at least he knew he was going to die in this, or he was prepared to anyway, because he was willing to cap himself. Um, if he wanted to kill more people, he could have loaded up a Cessna full of freaking diesel fuel-soaked freaking ammonium nitrate fertilizer and crashed his plane into the middle of the damn thing. He sure as hell would have killed and injured a hell of a lot more people if he did that. But we need to be teaching people what to do in these situations, but we do not need to be sitting back like judgmental dickheads, and saying, well, if I was there, what I would have done is, because, again, I'm telling you, the guy that says that is usually the guy that pisses his pants. The people that are sure what they would have done are generally the ones that make the worst decision because they've locked their mind into what they will do, and when the situation is such that either due to fear and paralysis they didn't expect they can't, or to the situation that they don't know, or they know that's a bad move. They don't have in their mind the concept of other options. The mind has to stay open. And to me, one of the things the mind stays open to is if I have a tool that can be used in the situation, and I'm not the person that's best suited to use that tool, then it might be that I might turn it over to somebody else who is better suited to do that. I think in the case of John Rich, that's what happened. There's other situations where if I thought there were multiple shooters and I'm trying to get people out 
and I could run into one of them, I'm sorry you didn't bring your gun. I brought mine. I mean, there, 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 are, there are cases where you'd say no. Or you wouldn't even volunteer that you had the option to do it. But judging this man, who I believe made the best decision he could under the circumstances that he was in, with a nonsensical statement like, I would never do that, or what kind of man, or any of the stupid shit that I've seen, it's just pathetic. And I think someone doing it has certain levels of self-doubt, and they're projecting it onto somebody else because they don't want to deal with it themselves. Those are my thoughts on it. Anyway, with that, um, I want to remind you, I don't have an item for you today, but if you do want to support the Survival Podcast and the work we do, one of the ways you can do that is whenever you're going to shop online, go to tspaz.com first, just tspaz.com first. You can see all the reviews that I've done on Amazon. You can see the deals of the day on Amazon, stuff like that. And as long as you go to tspaz.com before you shop online, you can help support the work that we do here at the Survival Podcast. Next up, our song of the day. Um, well, this is a song from one of my favorite guys, but I don't, I don't actually remember hearing this song. Um, I probably did, just probably so many years and burnt out brain cells into the past um, that I don't remember it. But it's from uh, John Lennon, and it's called Give Me Some Truth. And uh, it's a very angry song, and if you understand the time and the place, you, you can understand why. Uh, it comes out from the uh, the Vietnam era. And here's some stuff from it on, on Song Facts. There's a book written by John Weiner of the same time revealing a compilation of FBI files on Lennon, who was investigated as a drug user and a radical. The FBI feared Lennon would disrupt the Republican National Convention in 1972. Lennon referred to President Richard Nixon in this song as Tricky Dicky a nickname that became popular during the Watergate hearings. There are many lyrical references to politicians as deceiving, slick, and cowardly characters. Cover-ups such as the Malay Massacre in Vietnam frustrated Lennon into writing the song Demanding Simple Truth. Here's what I want to kind of point out. Lennon was vilified by the government. He was followed by and, 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 and intimidated by the FBI. Um, they said he was in the country illegally, and that's sort of kind of true because they made it that way because they didn't want him here and tried to throw him out of our country because he was a disruptor and he was a drug user and a radical. Now, I think John Lennon probably smoked a little bit of pot in his day. You, you, you want to bet, okay? But in, the, in 1972, half the freaking country was smoking dope. And, and that, all this was was an attempt to vilify the guy and discredit him. He's a disruptor. Disruption is highly American. Disruption is when our government's doing something that they shouldn't be doing, we speak up about it. But Lenin was vilified as some evil anti-American person because he dared speak out against the war. But all of the people like Lenin that were just basically saying, you're lying about this war. You're lying about this war. They were all Right. And that's what some, a lot of people that are blindly patriotic to this day have been unwilling to admit that. When they said your government lied to you multiple times about multiple things in Vietnam, they were all right. They were all telling you the truth. 
and it was the government that was lying. And it wasn't the Democrats that were lying, and it wasn't the Republicans that were lying. It was both of them. Multiple administrations in both parties put their hands on the Vietnam War, and the one thing they have in common is they all lied about it. So I think if you're going to be a student of history, when someone speaks out against things the United States is doing today and says, your government is lying to you, that doesn't mean they're right, but it does mean they could be. And when the government attacks them, and when the government tries to slander them, and when the government says that they're, 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 they're you know, anti-American or does anything to slander their reputation, it's not like your government doesn't have a track record of doing that. Just some thoughts. And I'm not saying that every time the U.S. military takes an action, we shouldn't. What I'm saying is we have a track record of doing it a lot of times when we shouldn't. And we should all be skeptical. And for all of us, bombing another country, killing soldiers or citizens of another country, using the amazing power and force that is U.S. military, should be our last course of action, not our first. If we're to actually have pride in who and what we are. Anybody can be a bully if they have enough strength and power over someone else. What takes restraint is knowing when and where to apply force only as necessary. That's something worth being proud of. That's something worth respecting. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help you figure out how to live that better life if time gets tough, or even if they don't. I've had enough of reading things by neurotic, psychotic, pig-headed politicians. All I want is the truth. Just give me some truth. No short head, yellow belly, son of tricky dick is gonna mother her but top so me but just a pocket full of hope. Money for
just give me some truth. Now.